Yeah, yeah he, well, he's always asking me trick questions like that, you know. It's, it's what I do. It's my charm. <laughs> it's absolutely my charm. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast. For anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by what day it is, can you guys remember what day it is? No. I mean, it's only Monday, so... That makes it a little easier. Okay, I was not even sure it was Monday at this point. (laughs) Anyway, I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health, and I am here. Well, I'm not here. I'm at home, but I am with uh, Jennifer Ryder from the Department of Epidemiology. Welcome, Jen. Hello. And we have a special guest with us today, Dr. Carrie Keyes from Columbia University's Department of Epidemiology. Welcome, Carrie. Hey, how are you? Doing well. We're very excited to have you here, particularly as the topic that we are going to be talking about today is one that came from you and is one that both Jen and I were particularly interested in. So we look forward to that. Um, Before we get into it, a reminder to everyone to head on over to the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. That's BU's hub for lifelong learning, where you find all kinds of interesting public health tools and our mini MPH online, which you can do for free. So head on over there and I think you'll really enjoy it. Also a reminder, if you can uh, give us a a rating on iTunes or whatever your particular app is that you use, we do have a new review that I am excited to read. One that was clearly done during the lockdown because it says, thank you from a lockdown epi student. This one was from the UK and it says, as an epi student, who has not been very productive during lockdown, I am so glad that I discovered this. Not only do I feel like I'm actually learning epidemiology and how to better critically appraise papers, but it is also really funny. Moreover, as someone not interested in infectious disease epi, it's so great to listen to something that is not about COVID-19. Keep up the great work. And I have to say, we have chosen intentionally to avoid COVID-19 stuff for the moment, although we are going to be talking about it in our second segment, but for main main papers, and I do think that is a good idea. So now on to the show. So today in our first segment, which is our journal club segment, we're going to look at a study on digital technology and adolescent well-being. Then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we'll talk about whether there is too much COVID-19 research being done too quickly. And then in our final segment, which is our favorite, our amazing and amusing, we will get into some things that make us laugh out loud or truly amaze us. So let's get into segment one. So segment one, we're going to talk about an article that looked at the impact of digital technology on adolescent well-being. It was published in Nature Human Behavior, and the study was titled The Association Between Adolescent Well-Being and Digital Technology Use by first author Amy Orban of the Department of Experimental Psychology at the University of Oxford in the UK. And I have to say, so I always write down what my my prior is on these studies before I ever read them. And my prior on this one was, I bet the media really loved this one. I bet they love anything that has to do with whether or not digital technology affects adolescent health. So let me give you a couple of of headlines on this one. So MSN said, is screen time really that bad for you? Uh, Forbes says, guess what? It turns out smartphones aren't a danger to our children's health. And then here we go. You're getting into my favorite ones. Uh, Forbes says, screen time may be no worse for kids than eating potatoes. 
which I think is is does come right out of the paper. So there is a reason for that one. And then Scientific American, the kids who use tech seem to be all right, which I like. <laughs> it's a nice, uh, nice reference there. So Jen, can you start off by telling us what this study was about and what they what they found? Absolutely. So in the last 10 years, the time spent online among children and adolescents has doubled. I couldn't help but wonder what's happened to that just over the last few months. Mm -hmm. But a prior pre-registered study of adolescents conducted in the UK by the same authors as this paper found that only very high levels of use were associated with lower well-being, and even those effects were quite small. However, findings from large national cross-sectional surveys on the impact of digital technology on well-being have shown conflicting results. Some of those studies actually have found associations with even moderate use of digital technology in lower well-being. So the authors provide three potential reasons for these conflicting findings. The first thing they point out is that challenges arise because the validated scales that are used in the behavioral sciences to measure well-being are often modified to reduce participant burden in in these large national surveys. And as a result, there are a high number of researcher degrees of freedom resulting from all these analytic decisions that they could possibly make. So they refer to this term a couple times in the article, gardens of forking paths is what it's called. The second issue is that the surveys typically have very large sample sizes, and that leads to statistically significant, but not always clinically significant findings. And then finally, they tend to be cross-sectional, and that prohibits any determination of temporality of, of the associations. So one potential solution to this problem would be requiring the investigators to pre-register, so to state their hypotheses and their analytic plan before looking at the data. But that's not really an option in this case because these data are often publicly available and you know that, that makes pre-registration in, infeasible. So another solution is specification curve analysis, which is the method used in this study. And at the very basic level that I understand it, it just involves specifying all of the possible analytic pathways that the investigators could choose, and then you plot all of those results, um, and then you can take the median to determine the, the median effect size over all of those possibilities. They looked at three different large data sets. So the Monitoring the Future Study, MTF, and the Youth Risk and Behavior Survey, which are both based in the U.S., and then the Millennium Cohort Study, which is from the U.K., They undertook this specification curve analysis, and then they also looked at the effects of digital technology use compared to a variety of other activities, all of which have been hypothesized to have an effect on well-being, but some of them having more established relationships than, than others. So the first thing that they had to do was outline their specifications. So they considered all plausible analytic decisions that had to be made in defining the exposure and the outcome in their regression models. So for the YRBS, that involved 372 specifications. For the MTF, that involved about 41,000 specifications. But the Millennium Cohort Study is a much richer data set. 
And so they ended up with over 600 million specifications that reflect the various potential combinations of the independent and dependent variables, plus the decision whether or not to include covariates. Now, if they started also allowing combinations of covariates in their models, the number of specifications went up to 2.5 trillion. So they selected from among those the 20,004 that they felt were the most, the most plausible. So all of those models were then run, and the beta coefficient for digital technology use was then plotted for, for each of them. So what they found was that in the YRBS, the median association, so the median of all those beta coefficients across all of the models, was negative 0.035. There were stronger negative effects when they just considered electronic device use as the independent variable compared to TV use. And when they included covariates in the model, the effect sizes got smaller. For the MTF, which was the largest data source, the median beta coefficient was negative 0.005. And once again, when covariates were included, the effects again became even smaller. The effective social media use specifically was the largest at negative 0.031. The MCS, which is, again, the highest quality data set in terms of potential confounders that are available, the median beta was negative 0.032. There were stronger effects when well-being was reported by the adolescent cohort member rather than the caregiver of the adolescent. And then when effects were uncontrolled for other covariates, the result was right around negative 0.07. And when it was controlled, it was negative 0.005, so much smaller. When they looked and compared their results to other exposures. So these were things that you would expect to have an association with well-being, like binge drinking or being bullied or getting into fights or being arrested, but also things like eating potatoes, which we mentioned already, or wearing glasses. They found that digital technology use had less strong effects than for things like smoking marijuana and being bullied, as well as things like getting enough sleep or regularly eating breakfast. Those had much stronger positive effects on, on well-being. But the effect of digital technology use ended up being quite similar to the effect seen for eating potatoes, and wearing glasses was actually associated with larger negative effects than digital technology use, which is... So that's where those headlines came from. Okay, so in summary, would it be fair to say that eating potatoes are really bad for you, and therefore social media is really bad for you? Is that, that a fair assumption? So, you know what's funny about the potato finding is that I grew up at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, where there's, you know, a very active nutrition department. And I think, you know, part of graduating from that program was basically an, an oath to never again consume a potato. So the yeah. potato finding to me was, you know, not so surprising. Okay, so okay, so obviously I'm I'm joking about the potatoes, but Carrie, I'm going to come to you in just a second. But basically, I just want to say that I have I had come across this study before. I didn't realize it when when you proposed it, and I'd come across it because I had actually listened to several podcasts a while back, hearing actually interviews with Dr. Orban, and I don't know that I necessarily completely buy all the results for this study for reasons that I'm happy to get into. 
But I have to say I'm super impressed by her and I'm impressed by this analysis, even if even if I don't necessarily take it as the the gold standard. It's just incredibly, incredibly thorough, I thought, and incredibly, I want to say well thought through, but maybe I'm not totally getting it right. But Carrie, so Carrie, tell us, tell us a couple of things. Start off with just why you wanted to talk about this study and then tell us what you think of it. Yeah, thanks. I mean, I, I agree too. You know, this is a controversial topic, but I think it's a really important topic for a couple of different reasons. A, right now, you know, a lot of parents are grappling with, you know, these questions. I mean, it's not just before three months ago, parents were grappling with the question of, should I allow my kids to have social media? Should How much screen time is the right amount of screen time? I mean, these are questions for every parent across the world. But then once we said, okay, well, now we're just going to let our kids have screens 24-7, yes. <laughs> which many parents are doing, the questions kind of shift, but the topic remains important. But why it's really been important in psychiatric epidemiology is that the there's growing evidence that mood disorders like depression and anxiety and self-harm and even fatal suicide has increased in pediatric and adolescent populations by a factor that is kind of historically unprecedented since around mm. 2012. Mm. And for a while, there was a lot of disagreement about whether that increase was true or not. But now there's kind of converging evidence across a lot of different data sets. So, of course, everyone's trying to figure out well, what happened over the last decade that has changed our adolescents' experience with mood and anxiety and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. these really destabilizing feelings. And I think the this very visible change in how adolescents engage with each other and engage with the world was, of course, a really tantalizing hypothesis because we can all see it. And so because of that, there has been tons and tons and tons of research on the topic. But what I liked about this paper in particular was just like you said, Matt, it, it really started on a basis of kind of not going into it with any preconceived notion necessarily of how this was, how analytically this would unfold and really just did this very thorough job. I agree with you. I mean, there are some decisions made along the way that if you were looking at a different kind of hypothesis, you might do it a little bit differently, but just the creativity and the sophistication in the analysis was very convincing to me that, that, you know, certainly this particular exposure is not the smoking gun per se mm. in what's causing adolescent mental health to deteriorate so much. And I have to admit that that fits kind of with my prior. So maybe I'm a little bit more inclined to believe it that I can certainly I can anticipate that there would be harms from social media. I could also anticipate there would be benefits. And it seems to me this is the kind of thing where the, the you're really looking at an average. And so you're you're averaging together the positives and the negatives. So so let's talk about this this specification curve analysis. So in my understanding, and I this is what I got from Jen as well. So I assume that we're we're both understanding this similarly, is essentially you're trying to solve the problem of the garden of forking paths, which is the idea that if you've got, you know, say 30 variables that you could potentially control for the number of combinations of analyses that you could do starts to get massive. And therefore, you could get any answer you wanted to probably if you just chose the, the set of variables that led to the answer that you wanted. And you want to well, avoid and that. And not just the control variables. I think too often we overlook the importance of exposure and outcome measurement. And you could even, even in the specification curve analyses where 
they held the way you're controlling for the covariates kind of constant, you could still get a statistically significant, quote unquote, positive result and a statistically significant inverse result and a no statistically significant association, just depending on how you decided to categorize those variables. And this seems to be something that the, the psych world is very focused on, this this sort of replication crisis problem of, you know, you could just sort of p-hack your way to right. any answer that you want. And so the solution that the psych world seems to have largely settled on, as Jen said, is this pre-specification of your analysis plan. But as she says, there, there's all kinds of reasons why that wouldn't work here. And so instead, what you do is rather than saying, we'll pre-specify what we think the, the analysis plan should look like, we'll look at every possible set of results. But right. I guess my question is to you, why? I mean, it, it seems to me there is a right answer, right? There is a, a set of, there is a data generating mechanism that led to the data that we have. And there is therefore a right answer analysis. And so why why would we think that taking the just the median of all the answers to be the right answer? I had I had the exact same thought. And I think if this was truly exploratory and we had no information about the relationship between our exposure and our outcome, like I think this is a fantastic method and I'm I'm glad that I was introduced in this paper. I think it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. But but we do have prior information, and it seems that you know you're equally weighting the the analytic decisions that are consistent with that prior information and and the ones that we we think are are incorrect. I think I would have been really reassured if you know there was very little different. You know, it's like you mm. couldn't, no matter what you did, you got the same result. <laughs> hey. That would have been great, but that is not the case here. I mean, the the real take home was that how you define the outcome in particular makes a huge difference. And, and in fairness, I don't, I don't think my read of kind of the discussion section of this paper is that their their point was that I mean, and I think they say at one point like we're not. This study does not tell us really exactly. anything about yeah, whether they were digital very technology use yeah, influences yeah. well-being. Like that's not yeah. what we're trying to say. We're trying to say that there is all of this variability in the way you could come to an inferential conclusion and that that is often overlooked. And so yes. I agree with you taking the median, you know, again, like you said, if you had absolutely no information, maybe the good choice, maybe the right choice, but probably is not. But I don't. I don't think that they are necessarily saying, well, we took the median. And so now we know for sure that there is a small negative effect of digital technology on well-being. Yeah. But but there there were also things, you know, that and they were things that make sense that really stood out as as having very, very strong influences on on well-being, you know, tens of, you know, time the size of, of the effects that w- was seen for digital technology use. And I think that information is also helpful for, for just putting the results into context. And I think helpful for parents who are nervous about the role of these technologies in their adolescents' lives. Of course, you know, people should know their kids and, and of course, you know, make sure that they're using any kind of technology in a, in a way that is consistent with kind of the family's values. But at the end of the day, you know, ensuring that your kids are remaining substance free, that they're mental, that they're talking to people about their mental health, that they're engaging in extracurriculars that they find fulfilling. You know, those are kind of the time tested and true ways to make sure that your adolescent is thriving. So 
When Jen read the effect sizes at the beginning, normally, so normally I listen to the, the effect sizes and, you know, I've read the paper and so I'm just sort of reminded of it. And, you know, she'll tell us there's like a relative risk of 1.2 or, you know, a you know risk difference of 20%, things that I can easily wrap my mind around. These numbers, I, I don't really know how to put these in context because they're just not something that I'm very familiar with. Carrie, are they are these the kind of things that you look at and you immediately have a sense for this is a big negative effect, this is a small negative effect, or is this is this really because of the way that they set it up? And my understanding is they're using standardized coefficients here that it's that it becomes very hard to to say the specifics of the the effect sizes. Yeah, and that's actually been a big controversy in in this field. You know, I'm an epidemiologist like you. And so I want a risk ratio, you know, like that's where our risk difference, like that's where I'm living. And so, you know, but I do work with a lot of psychologists who are always saying to me, like, why are you dichotomizing this measure? You, You know, it's a continuous measure. Like you can get much more variation. I'm like, I just like, you know, do you have it or not? You know? Yep. Yep. So, it is difficult for me. I mean, maybe, you know, not, not for others, like you said, but it is difficult for me to look at those standardized beta coefficients and, and be able to make a sort of qualitative conclusion. And so in this paper, for example, they use the R, an R squared measure to say, well, you know, this actually explains a very small portion of the variance in the outcome. But there's been a lot of pushback against that, including in this, there was a commentary that was published just recently on the paper by a group of authors who've been very critical of this work in general, saying, well, you know, our squares are not really a great metric for deciding whether an effect is big or small. And when you look at the absolute numbers, you do see this kind of what, you know, some might call a clinically relevant difference at these very, very high levels of social media use on some of these measures of well-being. And that should be what guides us as public health researchers and not these these measures that are more bounded by the total amount of variation in the sample, which is more mm-hmm. kind of a characteristic of data collection to guide our decisions about when an effect is big or small. And I, I don't have a, a necessarily a, a reaction to that, except that, you know, probably it's not either or and, you know, the, the classic it depends answer and that really you should be using both. And I think two things can be simultaneously true, one being that a very small R squared indicates that there is a lot more going on with adolescent mental health than just how many hours of TV they're watching a day or how many hours they're spending on social media. Like there's a, there's many more things that are driving why some kids have, you know, low well-being and some have high well-being than just this one thing. Like that, I think, is abundantly true from a small R squared. But it could also be simultaneously true that with a small R squared, you could probably have some meaningful differences that are important to document. I think my concern is, is in addition to is the effect big or small, is that you know most of the kind of high profile research like this that has been conducted is cross-sectional. And so the yes. selection into what kind of kids are spending 10 hours a day on social media, you know, the daily diary studies and the, and the smaller studies that have been conducted indicate that kids who have a lot of offline mental health problems engage in pretty problematic online patterns of, of use. And so, you know, you are over selecting at those very, very high levels of use, which is where you see the, you know, potentially clinically significant or public health relevant or whatever you want to say, you you have these much bigger effects, but is there where you're going to have much more selection? So, you know, I think, 
I, I don't know where, you know, so, so that's where I come down on all of it is just that there's, there's probably a lot more complicated dynamics going on at those high levels of use rather than simply, well, those are the kids for whom social media or these other forms of digital technology are harmful, but those are kids who stuff is going on that parents and clinicians might want to be aware of. And I, and I, I, I had the same reaction when it, when, you know, looking at the cross-sectional nature of this data. And I also started to wonder a little bit about, is there a potential that you've got a reverse causation situation going on here where you, you know, you're experiencing depression and therefore you turn to social media? I, I certainly don't believe that would explain all of it, but I just, it just does make me wonder whenever I see cross-sectional. Jen, what other, other critiques that you had of this study or things that you liked or didn't like? No, not really any other critiques. I'm just, I'm curious whether you have seen this strategy applied in other epidemiologic settings. So, I mean, I just, the first thing I thought of was it could be really useful in some nutritional epidemiology studies, right? Like where there really are countless analytic decisions, even if you narrow it down to just the plausible the plausible scenarios and that that could be really, really interesting, but I've never come across that. Okay. So here's where actually, I I think this has actually possibly been done because, so when I saw this paper after reading it, my first thought was, oh, you know, we have a doctoral student who I think could potentially use something like this for a situation where you have comparable randomized trial data, and that would be in the pharmacoepi world. Mm-hmm. And so then you could actually kind of compare whether or not the average effect, how that compares to a trial effect. Obviously, there are differences between observational effects and uh, effects in observational studies and, and randomized trials anyway. So, but I thought that would be interesting. And he sort of responded and said, so is this the same as vibration analysis that has been done in nutritional epi? And I thought about it for a minute, and I think the answer is yes. So this is something that John Ioannidis has talked about um, and shown that essentially you can get any answer you want as to whether or not, you know, potatoes are good or bad for you, depending on the analysis. And actually, wouldn't it have been interesting in the same paper to have done the same kind of analysis just for potatoes, potatoes to see if you get any answer you want for potatoes. <laughs> right. Yeah, that is funny. Well, it's a, you know, I did notice there is some different terminology here yes. that got me a little tripped up. So, you know, the paper talks about, you know, that the controls and, yes. you know, one study has better controls. And when I think of controls, I'm thinking of people, a comparison group. Yes. And no, they're talking about covariates, poten- yes. you know, potential confounders that you put in the, in the model. And it took me... It wasn't until my second read of the paper that I finally I finally caught on to that. So so another one they talk about is it's going to take me a second to find it because I wrote it down. But oh, common method variance, common method variance, which is what we would call dependent error, or dependent misclassification, something that that I think that the psych world is way ahead of us on thinking about, you know, just different terminology. Carrie, Carrie any any other thoughts on this paper? Uh, no, I, I think that we've covered kind of the, you know, the, 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 the basics of it. I think it's a really interesting method. I think it highlights, you know, our role as researchers in needing to be as transparent as possible with our, our analytic choices. I do think, you know, for myself, it's really difficult too. you know, even so I'm a full disclosure, co-investigator of Monitoring the Future, which is one of the three studies that was used in this paper. And so oh, like, I didn't know that. Yes. 
And I've done a lot of analyses with the Monitoring the Future data set. And you, you know, I can think of a million times, even looking at, you know, these same types of well-being outcomes where I go into an analysis thinking I'm going to, you know, operationalize my variable one way and then realizing it's not going to work for whatever reason. You know, there's not enough variance. The distribution is really skewed. I'm going to have to make different decisions than I went into it with. And I don't think I think very often until I read this paper about what role those decisions might make inadvertently on um, hopefully on in my part on on the results so you know i do think that are sort of my main takeaways one being that you know there's no slam dunk here for digital technology whether it's social media or or any other form of digital technology there's not something clearly emerging where this is a major threat to our adolescents health nonetheless Adolescents who are using excessively large amounts of digital technology every day, you know, check in with them, you know, see what's going on. They might be, you know, that, that might be a consequence or may drive, you know, feelings of, of destabilized mood. But more than that, as scientists, you know, papers like this really force me to rethink the way I'm doing my work to be more transparent and, and use some of these methods. I think that's a, that's a really good final message because I would agree with you that I think that one of the things that we have not totally solved in epidemiology is how do we prevent, you know, the whole, what's our solution to the p-hacking problem? I think we have gone largely in the direction of pre-specification of analyses through DAGs or at least justification of analysis through causal diagrams. But I think that's still in a corner of epidemiology that hasn't been widespread. And so I, I, I don't think we have solved the problem. No. And I don't think we are grappling with it nearly as much as the, the psych world is. So I really, I really appreciate it. And I thought this was a was a really great paper, even though I don't, you know, necessarily take all of it. You know, I think there's some issues and things that I would might do differently, but I really appreciated this one. Me too. So can I can I end though with my one my one pet peeve on this one, which is did you look at the label? The for table two or the, the title for table two, I'm going to read it to you. Table two, results of SCA for the YRBS, MTF, and MCS, both <laughs> overall and for different technologies, variables, parent slash adolescent self-report and with without control variables. Now, if you know what all of those abbreviations mean, I'm sure that's a very easy <laughs> table title to digest, but I don't. And so I just stare at that like, wow, I have to decode so much here to try and figure out what's going on. All right. So let's uh, let's leave it there and let's move on to our second topic where we're really going to freewheel it a bit here because we're not really going off of, of an article like we sometimes do. What I really want to talk about is switching over to this issue of the coronavirus and all the research that's being done around coronavirus. So I'm not interested specifically in the research, any particular study, but I'm interested in the, the concern that has been expressed by many, I am certainly one of them, that worries about what we do in a pandemic when we are absolutely required to generate research information as fast as we possibly can. But in the process of doing that, inevitably, we have to do some kind of sacrificing of quality. At least that's my take. I don't you know, I'd like to think that we keep the quality quite high, but given that most coronavirus research papers are being published in the preprint literature, so they are being put out before they ever get 
peer-reviewed, and then they are being peer-reviewed at a pace that I've never really seen before, uh, inevitably errors are going to happen. And this kind of, you know, concerns me, and yet I don't have the solution because I do certainly admit that we have to move quickly when it comes to generating information that is necessary for public health action in a pandemic. So I'm curious what your experiences have been with the the literature around the coronavirus. I'm sure I know neither one of you is directly involved in, you know, sort of the epi of coronavirus, but I'm sure we're all reading it. And, you know, what your experiences have been and whether you have the same concerns that we run the risk of doing some some damage here. Thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's clear that some of the checks and balances that we typically use in our system to make sure that research is accurate and of high quality have to be sacrificed for the sake of speed. But I think, you know, what I've struggled with is how quickly that's been then translated into policy decisions. So you take the study on ibuprofen use, right? Like that, it, it felt as if that quickly turned into a recommendation and that that's the step, you know, if that would have just been the first step and then research continued, I think that would have been fine, but it, it, what, it became a recommendation very, very quickly. That, that ibuprofen was harmful in patients with COVID. And should be avoided. And yeah, should be avoided. exactly. Yes. Yeah. And so what's what's the what's the the take home for you on that? Do we do we need to slow down? I mean because we I mean the truth is we can't slow down. So what's the what's the solution here? I, I and I of course I don't have it. That's why I'm asking you. Yeah. And of course I don't have it either. So I'm going to ask Carrie. But <laughs> but but I think you know, but I think when I think there just should always be a risk, you know, the weighing of risks and benefits in mind. And again, you know, the other example was ACE inhibitors. And before you tell patients who really need them to stop taking their their required medications, you should have very, very strong evidence. I think the the bar for that should be should be much higher. Yeah. I would certainly agree, Carrie. What's your what's I, your sense? I been? totally agree. I mean, I, you know, absolutely. There's going to be some kind of trade off there, and we face it in epidemiology all the time. When you know you have to, you know, you have to make a decision, and you know, there a decision must be made. And if time is not on your side, the decision still must be made. I worry, and I don't. I I truly don't envy any of the clinician scientists who are making decisions about what medications mm-hmm. to recommend or not recommend on very incomplete science to say the best. You know, I, I don't envy them and I don't envy mathematical modelers who have to, mm-hmm. you know, advise policymakers who might not understand the amount of uncertainty that that the modelers certainly do going into those decisions. And on on my side, what I see more often that I, I do think we could avoid is the massive amount of resources going into now COVID-related data collection projects, whether they be, you know, in, in my field, I see a lot of studies of mental health during quarantine, mm-hmm. well-being, you know, that are not properly designed, right? Because people are quick to to want to get in the field, you know, like this is you know, quarantine is not going to last forever. And we do want to know what the mental health effects are, for example. And so you do have to get into the field very quickly, but there's a massive amount of resources being placed on studies that sometimes are not going to yield very 
interesting answers or, or mm-hmm, not mm-hmm. are not going to yield important scientific information. And I also have to say, as someone who is a journal editor, that already I'm seeing a lot of papers come in and they're not the like, should your patient take aspirin? Yes or no, which I do think is more of a kind of life and death, you know, like you really need to have, you know, if, if the, mm-hmm. even if the data are riddled with limitations, it's still important information to get out there because it's building an evidence base very rapidly. Whereas yep. in my field, it's more the questions don't need to be published right now. <laughs> and, and, you know, we're not going to know that much about mental health and substance use after one month of studying people in the quarantine. Right. And, and, and it's not really important information to get out there. And so I, I think in, in my field, I think more of the emphasis needs to be placed on breathe, slow down. We're going to be studying the effects of this virus on people's mental health and substance use and well-being for like the next few years. And it's, and it's an exciting time to be in science because something changed so quickly that's going to have such a profound effect that, of course, everyone wants to get into the field. And that's not to say that all studies that are in the field right now of COVID are like poorly designed or anything. But I think exactly what, what you both have been saying of this trade-off between the necessity of the science for life and death decisions versus the need for kind of careful planning, study design, and question asking and question conceptualization, in some, in some areas of the field, th- those risk trade-offs are less immediate than others. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that, so yeah, the great points. I think there are two things that are, that are going on right now simultaneously. One is that we've got the preprint literature, which means you can put anything out there and in normal times, I think the preprint literature is a really good thing because it allows you to get feedback on on work before you actually publish it, and hopefully it, it makes things better. But in the time of a pandemic, when everybody is looking for information, the media is picking up the preprint literature very, very quickly. And, you know, there's bad stuff in there that that never would have been accepted in a in a good journal. You know, we run the risk of that information driving policy because it's making its way into the media much faster than it would otherwise. Simultaneously, I think you also have the peer review system being built to handle coronavirus because it is so urgent, such that you're seeing mistakes, I think, that are being made, things that used to be caught in the peer review system are getting missed. And there's been, I won't get into it, but there've been some, some very visible examples of this happening. And I worry that we are speeding everything up too quickly. So we are both putting everything out there immediately, but then we're also putting the the imprint of the journal on top of that maybe faster than we should. And I'm curious, since you mentioned that you're, you know, you see this from the, the journal side, I, I'm curious your take on that. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think that's a concern and I do think it has to be at the editorial level to evaluate each paper more carefully perhaps than you would. And you know, I, I, I don't, again, you know, it shouldn't stop people from submitting to journals. And obviously there's a lot of critical coronavirus related information that readers are going to want and need to know, but there has to be that editorial oversight. And so it, it does squarely land, I think, with the editors, you know, you can't expect peer reviewers to catch everything. And there is a 
reason that we have editors of these journals. And so you can't just look at the decision, you know, okay, two reviewers said major revision, one said minor revision, good to go. You know, it is your responsibility as someone in a leadership position in that journal to provide additional oversight. I I absolutely agree. So Jen, last word to you. Do you think that the preprint system is a system that works or doesn't work when you're in a pandemic? Uh, you want a yes or no answer? Yes. One word. That's it. That's all you get. <laughs> oh, I'm gonna say, yeah, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't say yes well, or no. I mean, I, I sorry. I, <laughs> no, no. I would love for your input. <laughs> I think, you know, what you hear a lot from the modeling community is certainly that it's it's the it's not a yes or no question because there is no other option. You know, mm-hmm. the, when, when the publishing system is going to take a year, two years for an article to come out, there, there simply isn't a, are preprints good, yes or no? It's, there's no other option when, when you have information that has to get out there. So there, it, you know, so, so I think that your hesitation answering the question <laughs> yes or no is because that, it's not a legitimate response option to that <laughs> question. Yeah, yeah he, well. he's always asking me trick questions like that, you know, it's... It's what I do. It's my charm. It's absolutely my charm. Okay, fair enough. So let's then let's move on to our last segment, which is our favorite segment, the amazing and amusing. Jen, do you want to do you want to go first? Sure. So I think uh, this time mine falls more in the amazing than the amusing category, which is unusual for me. But this week marked the. 40th anniversary of the eradication of smallpox. And I just thought we should pay a little tribute to that big event. Yeah. So I went back and reviewed the the timeline. Actually, this was inspired because in next week, I have to give the biggest talk of my career. All right. I am presenting to a group of seventh and eighth graders at my daughter's middle school on wow. what it is to be an epidemiologist because epidemiology is having such a moment right now. So sure is. Anyway, so I was looking back at at some history and I think, you know, the timeline of how this all played out is just, it's quite interesting and good for us to keep in mind right now. So it was 1796 when Edward Jenner inserted Pus, a word I that makes me cringe. Love the word. From Love the a, word. A farm worker with with cowpox, a related virus, into the arm of an eight or nine year old boy, depending on your source for this information. Months later, the boy was exposed uh, multiple times, but did not develop smallpox. Initially, Edward Jenner had some trouble getting these results published, which you know is always reassuring to hear stories like that. Publication system uh, is tough, even if you're Jenner. <laughs> Eventually he did, so in 1801. And then by 1807, Bavaria was the first mandatory vaccination program, which was followed by a mandatory program in Denmark in 1810. But it wasn't until 1967 that the WHO launched its global immunization campaign. And that particular year, there were somewhere between 10 and 15 million cases of smallpox and 2 million deaths. By 10 years later, there were zero. And that required the distribution of a half a billion vaccines globally. And the program was estimated to cost about 300 million US dollars, but it's estimated to save over a billion dollars annually every year since 1980. That is pretty amazing. 
That is amazing. Huge. That is a, that is a huge accomplishment and definitely worth being on the amazing and amusing. Thank you. All right. Carrie, what have you got for us? Mine is more amusing than amazing. We like the we like the amusing. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I have to say, my one of my students, Noah Kresge, sent this to me today when I said, "What's an amusing study that I can present?" <laughs> I had all my students like send me different potentials that I really liked. This one, which was a paper that was published in the Christmas edition of the BMJ in 2017, and it's which we on love. Yep. whether Peppa Pig encourages inappropriate use of primary care resources. Oh, and I, 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 I don't, I, we don't need a study for that. We know she does. Yeah. Well, I thought it was important. I thought it was amusing for this podcast because one, we're talking all about digital technology and whether it's harmful for kids. And during lockdown, I'm sure there's a lot of parents who are spending endless numbers of hours watching Peppa Pig with their small children. Mm-hmm. And this article, I think, presents a, a, presents a compelling case that Dr. Brown Bear is an unscrupulous physician. Mm-hmm. Through mm-hmm. a series of case studies in which Dr. Brombear provides, you know, inadequate treatment, over treatment, inappropriate care for the citizens of the Peppa Pig environment. And so mm-hmm. anytime we're watching any kind of programming with our children, and I have to say, I, I have a nine year old and have been watching a lot of television with him. And like we've been watching Star Trek: The Next Generation, the uh, he's really into Star Trek, and the okay. whole first okay. season, there are several episodes devoted to infectious diseases that are spreading around the Enterprise. That affect, wow! I mean, it's it's very it's very surreal to watch these Star Trek episode episodes in which like random members of the Enterprise are falling ill. There's no vaccine. They have to go to a different <laughs> planet to get it, and it's like very much <laughs> true to me. And uh, yeah, so it's it's kind of a it's an interesting time to be watching to be consuming content. And so for those parents consuming Peppa Pig content, even though there are positive public health messages in Peppa Pig. Just be wary of Dr. Brown Bear's influence on your children and perhaps provide some <laughs> counter messaging. See now, That's okay, so now I had heard that Peppa Pig had set up a video medical service. You're saying I shouldn't use that to, to treat my ailments? You know, as someone who's not a clinical epidemiologist, I'm not going to, you know, make a comment on your clinical decisions. Mm. You know, I think mm. those are decisions you're going to have to make with I, your family. I find cartoons give the best medical advice, so <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to go with it. All right, well, that was fantastic. I love that. For mine... We have many times on this program talked about predatory journals and amusing ways that people have outed predatory journals in the past. And there's one that has been going around Twitter recently that just made me so happy that I had to share it. You guys might have already heard this one. But this was an article published by a gentleman named Daniel Baldessere, I think is how it's pronounced, from the Department of Biological Sciences in SUNY Oswego in the, here in the USA. And he wrote this article to submit to this predatory journal to see if they would, in fact, publish it, despite the fact that there are some, mm, I'm going to say there are some telltale signs in it, that this is not your average, well-written research paper. I'll start with the title. The title of the publication is, What's the Deal with Birds? 
which, you know, you would think might tip people off that something is uh, not right. So I'll read you a few lines. I'll read you a bunch of lines because there's so many good ones. From the introduction, it starts off, birds are very strange. Some people are like, whoa, they're flying around and stuff. What's the deal with that? So I set out to test the hypothesis by observing several bird species. I watched birds and tried to figure out what they were up to. I predicted that these birds would be pretty wild, but that I might be able to figure out what their deal is. Then in the materials and methods, I looked at three different birds, a woodpecker, a parrot, and a penguin. I looked really close at them, squinting and everything, to try and figure out what was up with them. (laughs) To eliminate potential confounds, I conducted my experiments with only animals that I knew for sure were birds, and no other things like bugs or bats. Then he talks about some of the experiments, and then he says... That was a lot of work, so I didn't want to do that again. (laughs) Continuing on, to explore the relationship between appearance and weirdness, I ran two binomial generalized linear models with a link logit function. To analyze weirdness, we used the proportion of weird behaviors as the response variable. So then it actually, for a while, gets a little bit normal. But then then it gets in, then it comes back. Uh, I have to admit, these birds were weird. I mean, the woodpecker was hopping around on a tree, smashing its bill into the wood. The parrot had a really big bill and was really noisy. And the penguin looked more like a fish. It was swimming around and diving underwater. And so then the discussion then ends with, this is the first study that I am aware of to attempt to quantify the deal with birds. (laughs) This study has implications for climate change research. And then finally, from the acknowledgments, we thank Big Bird from Sesame Street for comments on the manuscript. So, And how many journals was it published in? Yeah, good question. Good question. This was the uh, Scientific Journal of Research and Reviews. So I am definitely going to be publishing there from now on. Yeah. The, the beginning, the intro sounded like something out of my six-year-old kindergarten science notebook, which he started with, you know, what's up with birds? Like I can, I can completely see that happening. Yeah. It's a, it's scientific research written by Jerry Seinfeld. (laughs) What is the deal with birds? I'm just going to say something right now though, is that I, I would like to make a goal that in the course of my, the rest of my career, I would like to publish a paper titled what's the deal with, and then an actual health topic that I study. And I want right. I want to do it. I'm 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 stating it here. Hold me Let's to do it. at my retirement party. You're gonna Let's have to do it. Come Let's and... do it together. The, the three of us are now gonna write a paper. What's the deal? What is the deal with epidemiology? <laughs> All right. Well, that's the end of our program. If you've got any feedback on this or any other episode, or you want to suggest or study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at at pophealthyx, or you can tweet me at at profmadfox, or Jen at at Jennifer R. Ryder, or Carrie at at epi underscore carry keys. Did I get that right? Yes, you did. Or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Director of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcaster, and Nick Guler for sound editing and keeping us all in sync. So thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you will download our next episode. Mm-hmm.